There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Criminal Connection Podcast. My name's Terry Stone, and today we're joined by the most famous hands in the SAS, Mr. Rusty Furman. Ah, oh, good afternoon. <laughs> Thank you for the invite. I'm just admiring your hands there, Rusty. You've got some nice hands there, mate. Yeah, <laughs> I've looked after them, mate. Yeah, need them for the job. You need them for the job. You need them for the job. You know, thanks for coming on the show. Like most people, um, you know, in, in the world... Had an obsession with uh, the special forces uh, since I was a child, um, and obviously wondered all about you know what they do, how they operate, all that sort of stuff. So, um, be great to just hear your story, you know, where where you grew up, um, and and what led you into the army. Well, um, yeah, thanks for the invite. As I say, um, nice to be back down London, change place. What um, do you think of London now? <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> But to go back to Carlisle, where I was born, yeah. um, all those years ago, yeah, you know, even at an early age, you know, 14 months, 
I pissed my mother off. She adopted me. So from there, I was left on my own two feet. Um, passed around different relatives over the years. Go and live there, go there, go there. So, and that's how it all started. And then finally, I was put into the army at age 15. Uh, junior leaders regiment Royal artillery. Don't even ask me how I got there, but I did. How did you get there? I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> because I was a long-haired Rolling Stones fan, right? You so, had my wig on from Rise of the Foot, something, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but actually, um, that's what I did. And I was forced in, marched down to a place called Nuneaton, Bramcut, in Warwickshire, junior leaders regiment. Straight in, they take one look at you, put you in the chair, gone. Everything, you're now discipline. One thing I never had as a kid, nobody to look after me, was discipline, I was wild. And when I went in the army, 50 pounds after my first three months would have got me out of the army because that's what it was gonna cost. I couldn't get the 50 pound, went back after, that, after the Christmas break and the, train, the initial training had been done then. And then I found myself um, doing what I wanted to do in the first place, be a footballer. Why? Because I always wanted to be a footballer, but I was a skinny runt at five foot two, seven stone. You know, in my school alone, we had three England schoolboy footballers. Wow. In one school. So that's... You sat in the air up Yeah, there. yeah. It must have been. <laughs> yeah. It must have been. But there's three in my school alone. Um, so the chances of getting in the school team were nil. But when I went into junior leaders, I started playing for them and grew, ten, you know, within two years, I grew about eight and a half inches. Oh. And put on, you know, with, with food, good food, good training. And I was in the tracksuit more than I was in the uniform for the next few years. And finally, I actually ended up representing the British Army at football. Wow. Which is as far, as high as you can go in semi-professional football. Because I was then going to, not unbeknown to me, I was going to be in the army for 27 years altogether. Wow. Having wanted by myself out at age 15. So I suppose, really, the army for you was like your family. It, it, it became my family because there were still some national service guys knocking around um, when I left junior leaders. They were footballers. Jordy used to play for Stoke City and places like They took me under their wing a bit. And then, you know, with them, all we did up in Barna Castle before we moved down to Salisbury was play football. And in my day, that's what it was. You know, you could go and clean everything up in the morning, knock off in the afternoon, some guys would go for a beer, or you could go and play football and stuff. Right. And that's how it was. It's not like that nowadays, but in my day, that's how it was. So I've got a question for you, Rusty. So back in the day, yeah. right, there was national service. Now there isn't. Do you think if we had the national service, it would actually um, be a good thing for the UK? So national service, I think, was brilliant. It brought a lot of people together. And guys who only went in for two years, remember, I think it was for two years, the guys who went in for two years very often stayed a course after that. Yeah. People who didn't want to go in the military, like me, going at was it 18 or something 18 plus um and they decide that it's for them and because it was for them they stayed in and made very good soldiers you, you need to have and i would say a balance where it's going to work 
because yeah. you know it's a difficult one. But I don't yeah. see anything wrong with national service. You know, I just I, I just think the way the UK is at the moment, it feels like there's a it feels a little bit lawless in parts, and I'm sort of wondering whether people always talk about you know these people that are brought up on council estates or don't have a good start and they end up sort of falling into crime or misbehaving. And obviously, if you did have that national service, I know the, the army's not for everybody, but I definitely think it would instill some discipline in everybody. Do you know well, what I mean? So well, that's it, my personal view. But No, but it, it did in me. I was a guy with no discipline. But as I went through my military career, I had to have discipline to do the types of work I was doing and not be a loose cannon, if you like. So I had to do that. And of course, the experienced guys around me, I learnt off. I didn't go in thinking I missed SAS, not at all. Right. Um, so I went in and went through the system into the artillery, into the commandos, got my Greenberry, went from there to the SAS and spent 15 years. Mine was progressive. But when I look back at how I got there, hard work for definite. But I mean, when you look at me at day one, and you look at me when I came out, you would never have thought it was the same person. Even I thought that. Wow. Cause, because a lot of people, um, you know, always sort of say, oh, I'd love to be in the SAS or the SBS or Delta Force. Um, and obviously they don't necessarily know the, the journey. So the journey for you was obviously you went in the Julia Leaders. Yeah. And then when, when you see the commandos, you actually went in the Marines. From junior leaders, I went into an artillery unit, 4-9 Field Regiment. From there, I, it, you do the Marine course, but people forget that Marines are administered by the Navy, they're not Army. We, 2-9 Commando, which is Royal Artillery, down based in Plymouth, are administered by the Army. So what you do is you do your own beat-up course, as they call it, for a month. Um, to get weasel out the people who are not for it. Once you've done that, you then go straight down to Limston and do the Marine course. Only when you've passed the Marine uh, Greenberry course, you're then given the um, Greenberry. But you've done both. You've done a beat-up of your own, and then you've done the Marine course. Right. Then you get your Greenberry. And only then do you get it. If you fail that, you don't get it. Right. I actually went on that PRC course in, in Limpstone. I actually I tried out for the Marines when I was 17. And I, I didn't like heights. So I went on that fucking Tarzan thing. I was just like up there and I was just like, oh, I can't fucking do this. And I run along, you know when you run along that thing and then you, you have to punch through the net? Yeah, yeah. I grabbed the net and he went, no, 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 you got to go up there. And I couldn't do it again. I was like, I can't fucking do it. Yeah. So I never got in. Which, which I was gutted about. But um, yeah, at the time, so, I was boxing and I was into fitness. Yeah. Um, and I fancied doing something like that. But for you, in the Army, the, the Army commandos and the Navy command, it doesn't, it's the same thing, basically. It's the it's, same thing. You've got to do the same course, the same yeah. selection process. Yeah. And then when you, when you come out of there, did you ever sort of think, oh, maybe I'll do the Special Forces, or did they come for you? No, it's voluntary. You can't, they don't push you on anything. No, I didn't yeah, know if the they asked you to do, do selection, you know, I didn't know if that was... Yeah, well, but it's still voluntary. You'd still have to say it's a voluntary, you sign it right. to say I'm volunteering. And then you volunteer and then you go on one of the two selections a year, either summer or winter selection. Um, and then you start that and then you've got the next six months. Um, 
input through it, yeah. And and uh, did you pass on the first one, Musty? Yeah. And how hard is it for people that, you know, I know people have watched the SAS reality <laughs> show, but in real life, how, how hard is that selection process? Yeah, well, just turn that off. It doesn't bear any resemblance, OK? Um, but it, it is hard. It, it's not just physically hard. It's mentally hard because you're being tested, you're being watched. You don't know what times you've got to do certain tests in. They only tell you afterwards. So everything is getting as much out of you that you can put into it in all different ways, you know, and at the end of test week itself, you've got the famous 42 miler when you've been beaten for a whole month. And then you've got the 42 miler on the last day with full weapon, you know, and kitten equipment on your back. How, how heavy is the gun in the, in the backpack? All of it together would have been about 60 or 70 pounds. Right. So anybody watching this or listening this is at home? Water, you've got water, which is heavy as right. well. You, you, if you want to go out for a three-mile run, try that, and then you'll see how fucking hard 42 <laughs> miles is. <laughs> but but I, I, I'm not being funny. Um, on the physical side, I, I, I was always fit anyway. But it, I've seen people come and go, and every day they're dropping out. You know, when you get up in the morning, you see another bed empty that night. It's not for everybody. Lots well, of people you, have tried. You like, was you, when you saw the empty bed, were you like fucking lightweight? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because you didn't have to buy him a pint that night when you came in off the training. He was gone. Well, but it's not for everybody. And, you know, I take my half to the people who've tried it and failed. What um, is the pass rate? Is it about 10%? I don't know what it is now. I don't right. keep tabs on anything yeah. to do with them anymore. But I think on mine, it was quite a good pass rate because in 1977 when I did it, the parachute brigade were being disbanded. Right. And there was a lot of paras, a bit disgruntled about it all. It was either go that way, I'll have a go at this SAS selection. So ours was probably a 40, 30 or 40% pass rate maybe, but generally I would think in the, in the day, um, 10 to 15 to 20 would be a good pass rate. So, right. and I mean, they come from all walks of life, as you know, all different units. <coughs> I mean, I think, when you look at now and you look at then, <clears throat> I think uh, we were much more sort of harder, resilient. Do you know what I mean? I think now people are a lot less, you know, when you put people through something as extreme as that, mm. that you've got to be, you know, slightly sort of fucking crazy. What a fun 42 miles. Cheers. <laughs> no, but you have, haven't you, right? And it's not for everybody. And uh, No, it's not for everybody. A lot of people would just go, yeah, I want to join. And then when they get maybe into mile 10, they go, fuck this, I can't know. But I, you say that, and it's quite true, because they, they've got some guys used to come from Germany to do the course. You know, when we had troops in stationed in Germany, they used to come across. And um, they knew that once they were there, they could have a couple of weeks in the UK. And I've known people come, get the kit, put the kit on. The next day, they take the kit off and hand it in and go and leave for a week or 10 days right. in the UK. For holiday. <laughs> I've, I've seen it happen more than once. And their whole was coming across, but never having any, nothing to do with selection. They, they just about fitted their kit and took it off and handed it in and off they went. Now they're in the UK for 10 days, just having a swan, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I've seen all. I've seen all of that. And what was you? What would you say for you personally was the hardest part of sele the selection process? <laughs> I've always said that getting on that vehicle in Hereford in the morning, 
driving out to the training area, doing everything on the hills, then driving back after it. That used to piss me off. <laughs> the actual physical, I swear to God, I loved it. Wow. And I mentioned more than once that that drive out to, from from Her Hereford out to the um, Brecon Beacons and stuff, um, just to be dropped off and then picked up later on. I hated that. Right. Um, running around the hills, I, I, I enjoyed it. And when you actually get told you've passed, um, yeah. what what is the ceremony? Is it literally just <laughs> like you stand all up? In, you know, it's like a, a proper like parade thing. And then they physically present you with a beret. Or is it more private thing when they? Well, I think it's quite rude. I'll be honest. I'm <laughs> because it's going on, mate. No, it. it's, it's <laughs> even better than that. You, when you find out you've passed, yeah, they then say, right, you're in B squadron, you're in A squadron. So a lot of the guys have asked which squadron they could go in. So if they can accommodate that, they did because you know four different squadrons: A, B, D, and G. But when, once you've got it, and they say, right, I want you to go and get to the quartermaster store. Go over there and get your berry and belt, and then go over to B Squadron for me. And then introduce yourself to the sergeant major. He'll introduce you to the guys. You go over there, and the QM will just pick up a berry and belt. What size are you? Um, six and seven eighths. Um, there's your belt, there's your berry, and uh, now get yourself across to your squadron. It's like that. There's no, um, like, unlike the green beret, right. you know, where you get little parade and, uh, you know, if you've got parents, they come up to, to watch it and clap. And, it's not like that. Wow. It's just, it's, it's rude. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, but it's a rude awakening, right. you know, so you don't expect anything special. You don't get anything special. Yeah. Simple as that. When I was up in uh, in Hereford, and I, I know it might might have changed since she was there, but I probably probably hasn't. What I loved about it was everywhere you go, there's a bar. Oh yeah, and I and I did actually think how many bars are in here, and there's something like twenty one bars or something on the base. And I actually oh, said, yeah, there's probably, yeah, but drinking like... is their national pastime, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but they didn't they didn't have that. Oh, you didn't have no, all their bars? No. Right, okay. No, we had a sergeant's mess, officer's mess. Right. And one other. That was it. The Polydrin Club. Yeah. Um, that was that. And um, when you um, passed and you went into B Squadron, I mean, for, for the viewers and listeners, what's the difference between the squadrons? If you can just go through the different four squadrons, just so they know. Well, there's no difference apart from A, B, D and G. And G was going back years ago, was formed from the guards, That's hence G. A, B, and D are just the, the, you know, there's other squadrons around, like C squadron, but, you know, but ours are A, B, D, and G. And basically, there's no difference in the, the standards. It, they've all got the same four troops within the squadron. Be so what a, are the four troops then? There's obviously the mountain, there's the boat. Yeah, mountain, boat, mobility, and um, mountain boat mobility, free fall. Right. And they, if you think about it, if required, those four are all methods of infiltration. If you needed to get in somewhere, free fall, boat, mobility. Um, so, you know, so it goes down that route. 
Did did you have the dogs uh, there when you was it when you was in the regiment? No. Right. Okay. No, we 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 had dogs, but not the type of dog that they have now. Yeah. They, so yeah, it's quite amazing when when you see them with the helmets and they're like flat jackets yeah. <laughs> and the, and the stuff they're trying to do now. I mean, it's it's a different level. I mean, you know. Yeah. I didn't know if you if if you use the dogs like they use them now. No, they like, didn't. They're definitely not. Um, but one asset, and I've seen them being trained and stuff. Uh, you know, it'd be great to have them. You definitely don't want one of them on your back. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> no, no Melanoids. Right. No. When you uh, went into into B Squadron, what was your first um, assignment? Was it literally as soon as you got in, or did you have to wait a few weeks? No, um, I went in November 77. I didn't have to do the parachute course because I'd already done it when I was in the commandos. So the month when they go off and do parachute training and jumping out of aircraft and things, I'd already done that. Um, So we had the, I remember having the Christmas off and then came back and my first tour was in Northern Ireland for six months. I bet that was fun. It's almost fun, but I got my long hair back. Right, okay. Yeah, it was right down here. Because yeah. that's the other thing that a lot of people don't know about, obviously, special forces. They're not as, you don't have to have your hair. When you're in the regular <laughs> army, it has to be down to, length, the, it? down to the wood, yeah. Yours <laughs> is long. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, yeah. And what was up, What was Northern Ireland like? Because a lot of people I, I, I know said that it was a very dangerous place. It's a dangerous place, but... I judged my time, um, got some, I'm never going to speak about the jobs, but um, had some... How was the point of coming on the podcast and I thought you just spilled the beans, Rusty? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I spilled the beans to a certain degree, but actually um, there was lots of different jobs there right. and you got to know a lot of the police quite well, your special branch, and you know, and you see the bigger picture of what's really going on, what you're told and what you actually working against is two different things totally and because i know that there was that sort of whole peace process and uh you know everything was solved but i mean i mean was it really or or do you think it's it's yeah about the good friday agreement yeah yeah no it's not solved you know in my opinion it's not solved at all i mean that's that's the thing isn't it i mean when you have these various wars and issues around the world and uh, obviously, on the on the surface, you're told this is what's happening, and then it's all been resolved, or it's he, the bad guy's gone now. Here's yeah. another nice nice guy that's going to take over. Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 every everything about it is what you read in social media, and but it's not the real truth. It's I what they want. On social media was true. <laughs> they want you to, it's what they want. What you get told is what they want you to believe. And of right. course, a lot of the people in a sheep they follow. Right. You know. Um, so what they're told, they go along with. But actually, there's a bigger picture, and you're never going to get. You, you never ever get to know the bigger picture because the guys who are putting it out are formidable liars. And they tell the lies which you want people to believe. People, a lot of people believe it. And this is only my opinion, by the way. Yeah. And um, people believe it, but they don't want to look around the corner just to have a, what else is happening. And they don't do that because they want to believe 
And um, certainly going back to the Good Friday Agreement, no, it's not fixed. Right. It's a shame, really, because I know a lot of people who, um, you know, on both sides of that. And um, yeah. I, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's I mean, it, I mean, I remember when there was that bombing as well in uh, Brighton as well. Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, I mean, that was, yeah, you know, that was, that was the RO, wasn't it? Yeah. Right. Yeah, that was um, Mr. By fairly close but um, yeah when that happened was you a Maggie Thatcher fan? yeah so I was as well yeah she was good I'm definitely a Maggie Thatcher especially when I see the state of what we've got now yeah. big nose Sunak and stuff I mean what's wrong with these people they won't stand up for anybody they're another bunch of liars Do you know Maggie Thatcher at least she had a faults don't get me wrong I think what was good about it though was she she uh Obviously, I'm working class, and I've lived on a council estate, and she gave us the right to buy our council home. So without that going through, we may never have owned a house. So I was always grateful for that. And I, I don't know, there was something about her. I mean, obviously, like you said, she had her faults. She but, had her faults. But, but for me, she was sort of like for the people. You know, I know it sounds mad, but I did watch Citizen Smith as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> All that power to the people stuff. I did think she grabbed a bit of that. Yeah, but... but I'll be honest with you, I'm talking about from a military side, being in the military when she was Prime Minister. Yeah. You saw how quickly she reacted at the Iran Embassy siege, as soon as they had proof of murder on UK soil. You know, um, she put the dust... Get Rusty on the phone. <laughs> Rusty, you don't need any gloves, mate. Go in there and fucking wipe them out. <laughs> yeah. And then the Falklands, she put the task force together. But she didn't really muck about. But right. there are some... Sides to the story. I've met her a few times. You know, what was she like, though? Yeah, she's, she's okay, you know. Um, Did she have that, she had that bag, didn't she? She always had that, it looked like she had a gun in it or something. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, Margaret Thatcher, yeah, I met her a few times. Yeah. Did a few demonstrations in the camp for her. Right. Dignitaries come to the camp. And after the siege ended, she came to Regent's Park Barracks with her husband, Dennis Thatcher and William Whitelaw, the Home Secretary, they came and um, said thanks and went round and spoke to everybody. And um, yeah, she's very approachable, yeah. not a problem. But at the same time, I like the way she handles stuff. Yeah. And as I say, I've heard about certain things, but actually, I'm talking about how she supported the military, give them a pay rise, actually. Yeah. So it wasn't all bad. I mean, um, I mean, that was one, one, uh, one thing. I know in Hereford there's the Clock Tower yeah. charity, and they obviously raise a lot of money for uh, the guys when they obviously die in action. And uh, I thought, I, I thought that was a, a nice touch, and, and I, I do support that charity and, and yeah. help raise money for 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 for, for, for the regiment, but. I've, when I actually found out what the guys get paid, I was shocked because I thought they would have got paid a lot more. Yeah. Because they, 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 they do risk their lives. Every, every time they go on a call, they could die. Yeah. Right? So. Yeah. You know, you don't... You join because you want to join. You know, the pay would always like to... Everybody would like to have more pay. Yeah. But I, I do know that from when I was serving that guys enjoyed what they did. Yeah. And I can say now that my 15 years there, that nobody had to motivate me 
and there wasn't a day that I didn't want to go to work. Right. And how many people can say that in the jobs that they do? Not Who's many. Not many, yeah. I mean, I, I being the pop father, yeah, yeah. obviously. <laughs> Every, every day's fun for me. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I'm, I'm not jumping out of planes killing people. So. <laughs> but um, but for, for you, when uh, when you was, when you did the Northern Ireland, uh, you was there for six months. I was six months to us. Then you swap over, another squadron comes in. And was it was it literally patrolling stuff, or was it more like undercover stuff where you sort of went undercover, um, walks around going top of the mind. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much more undercover, but um, right. I did work with the Green Army, as they call it. Is no. that that's the Irish guys? That's their no, the, no, our guys, but the the other military, not the SAS side of it. Right. Yeah, we call them the Green Army because they were always in green stuff. We were in all sorts of stuff. Right. So if we wanted to refer to them without using name, it'd be the Green Army. Got it. It's just something that's been there for years. It's not. Um, and I know you can't talk about any uh, actual operations because of the Official Secrets Act, but when you was out there, I mean, uh, w w was it mainly taking people off the streets and getting rid of them, or was it more about preventing them executing whatever they were doing? It's a mixture of all of it. Right. You know, we didn't have one specific job. If you were going to do a job, it would probably come from the special branch, Irish, They'd have whatever information they have, pass it in. Is it a job for us? And it would be all of that. Right. Um, so it wouldn't be the same job every day or the same thing every day. It'd if be you, mix and match over the period of time you were there. And, it, and if there was, uh, if there was like um, an ammunition cachet or some guns or some explosives, would would you seize that or would it be blowing up? It, it depends. Um, if, if it's there to be picked up hidden so sometimes you get people who inform and they will tell but you never know then if they call it a come on you know let's get them into the area us and then have somebody there possibly waiting to do no good you know to try and take our guys out would they would they it's called a like, come on they want you to come but would they be like uh yeah like in modern day sort of terrorism these guys or, or women will be strapped up with, with bombs. Would they do that or would it be more that they'd have a pistol no, or a sniper? It, it would be um, shootings. Right. Shootings mainly. Um, I know you, you know, you've heard the story of Warren Point and the Paras and when they all got blown up and stuff. So they were mixing, but we were learning all the time. And that's the secret. If you, if you, got, if you can stay a, a step ahead... That's the secret, and that's why we were successful. So they, so they, when I'm saying that, I mean the RA, the way that they would have their sort of command, they would, they'd have like an operations in how they would work. Yeah. And then you basically then work and, out how they're doing yeah, their thing. Yeah. And I take it like when you have a structure, once you've worked out what it is, then it's easier to catch them because they're... Well, that's the secret, isn't it? Because, you know, if you can arrest them... Um, it's, take, it's taking them off the street, isn't it? Yeah. And that's the aim of it, to get them off the street, whichever way you can. Was there a lot of arrests or, 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 or was it, was it, did it mainly go beyond that? You just had to literally take them out? Well, that's part of the deal, isn't it? You know. Um, I doubt they'd all go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nah. Sorry, officer. They, they, they were quite well armed. Right. You know, um, so let's not 
take that away from them. Yeah. But I still think, I still actually believe that, you know, when it eventually came to an end, it, it's never gone away. It might be hidden and it might be used as a cover for something else now. Right. But it's not gone away and it hasn't fixed anything. Wow. It's, it's gone quiet. So it really was just a publicity stunt, that whole thing? I think so. Wow. A pat on the back for some, you know. Um, but, yeah, you've got to have been on the ground there to understand how difficult it was to work. Wow. Especially with an English accent. Did, did, so you didn't, didn't go full Irish then? <laughs> no, no, no. A lot of the guys uh, in the Special Forces do that. They actually do wear disguises, they do put on accents, they do learn languages. So I oh, know. yeah, well, I've, yeah, languages and stuff, yeah. But that, I was talking specifically about Northern Ireland. Yeah. You know, um, Mickey Finn, and right. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, yeah. Did you did you lose any regiment guys when you was over there? Or yeah, there's a couple. Right. right. Yeah. And uh, but I, I take it it was uh, there was more of them went than than you, so it sort of all balanced out. Oh, I hope so. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then when you come back from Northern Ireland, what was your next? Uh... Um, jungles in Belize. I mean, what was that like? Because uh, it's, it's it doesn't sound like it's much a, fun. It's a filthy jungle. Um, Belize, in particular, um, it's, it's very thick, um, and it's it's not clean. You know, like the jungles of um, Brunei, let's say, right. and other jungles are clean. You know, but Brunei, uh, Belize itself was pretty. Yeah, it was pretty. It's, it's the roughest jungle I've been in. Wow. And I've been in quite a Is few. Is that because the spiders have got baseball bats and the snakes <laughs> yeah. have got hammers? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, um, it's it's very difficult to work in. You someone know. said, I've never been to a jungle, but yeah. someone said it's really hard to breathe. It feels very close. Well, it um, is because you're wet you all the wet. time. Yeah. You, if, if you're not sweating, which you always sweat, and so you've got your wet kit on all the time. And you'd have thought if they were that hot, they'd all wear mankinis, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, camouflage. <laughs> camouflage mankinis. Yeah, yeah. As long as they've got... Is it all SA-80s? Is that the gun they have? They, they, we never use them. The green, green Army have got SA-80s. We used to use Armalites. Armalites. Right. AR-16s and things like that, yeah. yeah. It's a weapon of choice, but I'm afraid the SA-80 is at the bottom of the list. Right, OK. Absolutely, okay. yeah. So the weapons of choice was the Armalite AR-15. And then when else? I was there, AR-16, AR-15, M203, which is the one that fires a bomb underneath, yeah. for those who know what it is. Anyone who plays Call of Duty, <laughs> grenade! That's it. <laughs> That's it, yeah. But they're real ones. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, blow people up. Yeah. So pretty much they're, they're, they are... Let's go back to Vietnam. Not that I was there, but they used to use them and they're very, very tried and tested weapon the AR-15, 16, M203. So if it was good enough for them, it's certainly good enough for us. But an AR-15, 16, that is... is that, it's Armalite. It's, 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 it's like a... It's a long rifle, or is it... It's, it's, a, it's, a light, it's lighter than the SLR, right. which was the British Army standard prior to the SA-80. Right. So it's a nice weapon, um, easy to clean easy to use, very robust, and it's ideal for um, 
for, for places like that. And what was the pistol you, you, you'd be issued with? Was that? Well, mine was a um, 9mm high power Browning, right. um, which was bog standard issue in those days. Did you have a choice, to, or was it literally that? That's uh, there, there was a, there was um, there was some other ones, but I always all I did was put some different grips on, you know, um, Packamire grips they're called, and they were a bit more to get your hand on to. Right. Apart from that, it was bog standard, and it may have had a high profile sight towards the end, yeah. front sight and, and rear sight. And the jungle and the jungle warfare. Or the training, or whatever you want to call it, was that um, just really just to get you ready, so that if there was ever a call out when you had to go somewhere like that, then well, th that's what we did, didn't we? Belize was under threat from Guatemala. I didn't know that. Right. Yeah, in the seventies, I did my jungle training there when I was on selection. The next time I went out, I was in my squadron, but that was that. There was a threat from. Twatagwat. That was the t-shirt, Twatagwat. But the Guatemalans, yeah, because it borders Belize, and they were bumping their gums about this, that, and the other, but it never got really off the ground. Right. I think there's some skirmishes, but uh, that was it. Did you ever go anywhere really cold? South Atlantic. Wow. So you've gone from the jungle to the South Atlantic. What was that uh, like? But that was in the Falklands. I went there. Oh, she was in the Falklands? Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, but guess what? When we went to the Falklands, it was so quick. We went there with jungle attire. It was all jungle kit. It wasn't any warm weather kit, nothing. Right. And we jumped into the South Atlantic. It was fucking free. It was, yeah. <laughs> that, that ain't a joke, mate. I mean, I had to piss inside my wetsuit to get it warm. <laughs> oh. Seriously. Um, it, it, and then you just bob, bob along um, until somebody comes and picks you up. Wow. But underneath my wetsuit, um, the time I was there, I had jungle warfare kit on. Oh, so you actually wore the wetsuit and the jungle thing at the same time? That was to jump into the Atlantic from the C-130s. That's how we got into the. Well. That's wow. how we got to the fleet. We flew, refueled a couple of times in midair, and when we got into the, when we could see the fleet, it was time to jump out into the Atlantic in a snow snowstorm. Um, you could see the. You couldn't see. You could see. You could see a boat. You couldn't see it. And once we hit the water, it just waited. I suppose that's probably a scary time because you're absolutely freezing. Freezing. And you're just hoping that somebody doesn't fucking forget you yeah. there. But if you if you read when you read my book, one of them, you'll see that the first thing I saw, because you've got a life jacket on your on your back, and you can see like this. About that's about it. And the first thing I saw was a knife. And it came down straight through my life jacket and they pull you on board wow. the inflatables and that was the first thing I saw you saw an eye because you thinking please don't be a husband please don't be a husband you can have the fucking honour yeah yeah you can have that and the oil take the oil with it and the minerals yeah but that's the first thing I saw was the knife it cut the, sh um, the life jacket because I'm still at that stage I have my parachute on yeah um, but that, that was it, you know. When you was in the Falklands, I mean, obviously, 
comparing it to like the Northern Ireland thing, it was a fairly short short war, wasn't it? Yeah, April to June. Because I remember Maggie basically sending the sending the boats, and I remember <coughs> like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna yeah. we're gonna t- we're gonna have a war it, now. It was um, early April. I can't remember the exact date. Six maybe springs to mind. But it finished on the 14th of June. Wow. Um, so it, it was a short conflict. I don't even call it a war. Am I right? Am I wrong? I don't know. But was it, did you get too much there, or was it mainly just? No. No. What we did is our job. The other squadrons were already there. Um, I was on a language course actually when I got taken off and said we're going down to the Falklands. Okay. Um, so our our job was um, to go to Ascension Island first, halfway, um, and there we were going to train for a specific operation, which was against mainland Argentina, and that's what we did. Um, so we practiced all this C-130 um, landing and taking off and jumping out and attacking, because unbeknown to a lot of people, the there was three Exocet missiles left in um, in that base, Punta Gorda. There was three Exocet missiles which had done all the damage to the guards. Remember when they, they, their boats got <coughs> blown up and they, a lot of injuries? Well, I remember they were, they were, co- they were caused by Exocet missiles. Right. Exocet missiles were given to Argentina by the French, Yeah, right. our mates. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, Macron. <laughs> Yeah, wow. Yeah, big nose. And, <laughs> and um, our job was to stop those Exocet missiles being used. So we kept practicing to hit the the um, Argentinian airbase, find those Exocet missiles, destroy them, destroy the aircraft that flew them, the Super Etendars, right, and kill the pilots and then escape and evade if anybody was left over the mountains into Chile because Chile was a little bit friendly because Maggie Thatcher was quite pally with Pinochet so we had a safe but it was nicknamed for obvious reasons Operation Certain Death because two C-130s to land in the middle of Argentina with no air support, no nothing. And what, 60 guys, 70 at the most, and then take out all of them and then escape and evade. When it was surrounded, the airbase was surrounded with Marines. I think you'll agree that not only would it have been hairy, yeah. <laughs> the chances of me sitting here today would have been like nil. But that was called off at the last minute. Um, as you probably remember, we had 19 guys die in one helicopter incident. Yeah, I remember that. Right. Yeah. Those guys were from two different squadrons, not our squadron. And there had to be a reshuffle of men, equipment, and so on, because they died instantly when that chopper went into the South Atlantic and plunged to the bottom. What caused that? Was it a mechanical fault, or was it...? There's, there's a number of... They said a bird strike... You know, the big albatross through the engine intake, um, over, overloading the, the um, helicopter. 
yeah. because the guys were cross-decking going from one to another boat they all got on there and it went bang of course they all went to the bottom that quick wow um and there was 19 of them in one go that's a lot of guys isn't it yeah and um so our plan was taken off and we were dispatched to take over one squadron was coming out as we were going in but the war finished a few days you know not long after yeah but to suffice to say that it was a big shock and what a waste of lives yeah um yeah because because it's because it's funny a lot of people um hear about special forces and they just think they just you know come into war but i mean like with the ira which is you know a terror criminal whatever you want to call it organization obviously there was a plot against them when we actually look at home soil um how after the argentinian war with the falklands i'm just trying to think of the timeline the actual Iranian embassy siege that was was that 82 that was no the falklands was 82 and the siege was 80 got it so the siege was actually before the yeah. falklands war right so yeah. So the 30th of April, 5th of May, 1980. Wow. So that, so, so again, that was, and uh, I don't know if you call them criminal or terrorist organisation, do, you know, do, doing what they did. It was, it's when the Iranians they broke into the embassy, didn't they? And they, no, no, no. The it was the Iranian embassy, right, in Princess Gate, number 16, Princess Gate. Yeah. And it was the six heavily armed terrorists who were Saddam Hussein back from Iraq. Right. So, yeah, so it was the Iraqis that held up the Iranian embassy. That's right. Got it, got it. I'm trying to remember it. It was so yeah. long ago. Yeah. I was only nine then. <laughs> You're only ten now. <laughs> right. How, how old was you then, Rusty? When that, 30. Wow. Yeah. And, and then what happened? Um, I mean, you, you was obviously up in Hereford. Yeah. You got the call. It's in the. It's all in my book here. Go, right, go, okay. go. Would you let's have a look? Let's have a look at your book, because uh, oh, you got two books. I love yeah. that. Yeah, that's you got one about the regiment. That's my career up until I left the regiment. Amazing. This one, go go go, is the definitive story of the Iran Embassy siege, which is turned into a film. Six days. Do you know something? Have you seen I, it? I saw it, and I wanted to ask you, Rusty, what's it like? Being played by Billy Elliot. Well, ballet dancer. <laughs> now, let me tell you a story then. Right? I went out to New Zealand to meet the stuntmen, the actors, and Jamie Bell. Right. So I gave him a book and said, you've got to become me. There's my book. He read my book while we're there. Right. However, <laughs> the uh, Jamie Bell here, yeah. right, he um, and the stuntmen and actors I took off to one side to teach them shooting techniques, which you've seen in six days of film. I took them off to one side, but I was concentrating on all of them. But I'd take Jamie to one side because he had to become me. Hence, the no gloves and all the rest of it. Yeah. So, Jamie, a ballet dancer, me trying to teach him how your feet should be. Has he been when very graceful? Shooting. Yeah. Shooting people. Yeah, a bit, <laughs> a, a bit fancy. Right. So, you but feel, what a great you, thing though to be able to say Jamie Bell, aka <laughs> Billy Elliot, played me in a movie. I mean, that's a, that's a cool thing. But a the, cool the, thing. The, the thing is that when his feet, 
because he was a ballet dancer and a dancer or whatever you want to See, something I, I'm, I'm I not. thought he was playing a role he's actually a ballet dancer yeah I didn't even know that. Right. Well, sorry. Well, not sorry, sorry, Billy and Jamie. Just went, <laughs> but anyway, let's say he was a dancer, right? But right. he did all them whizzy things. Kill the cats when he was yeah. killing people. So I was getting him to, to say, right, this is how you do it, Jamie. You've got all the kit on, right? It's got all the kit on. All the black kit, weapons, MP5. And I'm, and he's saying, and I'm saying to him, I'm going to play you. So I video him, play it back, and say, Jamie, useless. So he, he beat himself up, right? go back and do it again. So he's going to do it again. And eventually I got pissed off with him. And I said, Jamie, look, he said, Rusty, I'm a dancer, you know. I said to him, I said, well, just remember, Jamie, Rusty don't fucking dance. <laughs> and he got it. He got it on the spur of the moment. He got it. Right. And that's from no then on in. It was, in yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, no tap dancing here, mate. But that's what I said to him. Right. But it was good fun training him and, and having some fun with him, yeah. Um, but it was done in How long did it take him to actually fully get it? So you watched him and went, two this weeks. kid's got it now. Uh, two weeks. Wow. Two weeks. So ballet dancer to SAS hero <laughs> in two weeks. If yeah. you want to book Rusty, he's available. Yeah. <laughs> he can, yeah. Bring he can help you release your inner SAS. Bring your own ballet shoes as well. <laughs> Man of four. <laughs> but yeah, so that, that, that was the fun part. Amazing. Um, but it, they read my book, Go, yeah. Go, Go. The New Zealand Film Corporation came to UK. I introduced them to some of the guys, let them tell their story, what happened there. Amazing. They knew my story because it was in the book. Yeah. And they decided to pick something which was the camaraderie part, like some myself, John McAleese. I had no gloves, so I was an easy target. And that's how they put that film together from the book. Wow. Now, we should actually talk about... Obviously, you you you, you become becoming the, the most famous hands in the SAS. So we should actually talk about the story. So you know, when you got the call up, what happened? Well, Where was your gloves, Rusty? I, I, <laughs> I didn't call myself the right. most famous hands in SAS history. No, but I love they it. Caught, I love that somebody's done it. Yeah, it. but they they were caught by the police sniper on the day, May the fifth, when we went in to do the resolution. So my gloves, <laughs> to answer your question left on the table from the time when we were, we were sat watching the snooker basically Cliff Thorburn was playing Alex Higgins in the final of the Embassy World Championship and right in the middle of that we got the call because it produced a dead body then if they they'd killed um, Lavasani the young oppressor attache from the arena and they dumped him outside that was right in the middle of the snooker but his body was, was a policewoman killed as well. Sorry, was a policewoman killed? Or was that a separate incident? No, that was the um, that was another embassy. Yeah, because I'm, I'm yeah, that, that was um, I'll come on to that one in yeah. a minute. So but, many embassies, Rusty. <laughs> but proof of murder. That's that was proof of murder, and we were ready. So we got the call. Um, Mrs. Thatcher at the time handed control. It was a police operation, for those who don't remember, supported by the SS. As soon as that proof of murder was on there, the Prime Minister ordered the SAS to take over from the police, and the police then supported us, really, because we had to go in and rescue the hostages. And that was the mission, to rescue the hostages. Nothing else, rescue the hostages. I left my gloves on the table when the snooker was on, on the TV, 
Normally I'd put them down, my body armor. Right. I hadn't this time, I'd put them on the table. When I went out with my team, go outside, but realized I didn't have my gloves, but I wasn't going back for them right. <laughs> because we were getting into position to go and rescue the hostages. So really my gloves, um, I picked up when I came back. But in the meantime, the police sniper who took the picture, the famous picture of me with no gloves on and my team around me, that became the most famous hands because of exactly what I've just told you. I was the only guy without them and I was a team leader. Um, and and oh, so you, was, you was actually leading that whole thing? Yeah. Wow. I, I took wow. over from Roy on the final assault, yeah. Um, and for people listening or watching this, um, obviously you can go on Google, YouTube, there's videos, there's footage, there was obviously a lot of news footage, images. But when you're actually there, Rusty, um, you know, talk us through what the what it's actually like to do a you know, fucking siege of an embassy. I mean that's it sounds cool, <laughs> right? But I mean the actual thing that you do, I mean you must the adrenaline must be pumping, you must be literally just locked in, you know, ready to fucking Switching people off. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's a fact. I mean, you know, we've been there for six days, hence the name of the film, Six Days on Netflix. Um, and we trained and rehearsed and planned. Every minute we were there, we were using as if we were going to go into that embassy and rescue the hostages. No sitting back waiting, or maybe the, we had three different plans at one stage, what we were going to do. So we don't have one plan, we had three. And, and why, why do you, so, so just so we can all understand this, you have three, three plans, is that because? We could have had four, we could that, have had is five. That, is, is, it, is it literally then at the time you go, which is the best one? Or do you execute one, if that doesn't work, then you go to the second plan? Yeah, but because we had the time, nobody knew how long the operation was gonna go on for. So we had one plan, which was the initial plan, which gets updated over the years, uh, sorry, over the hours and days you're there. Nobody knows how long that's gonna be, but you've got a plan. If you've got time, you have other plans, and we call it, what if? What if something goes wrong, what if? You've got something else, you don't get caught short. And the third plan was another one, what we were gonna do, all different types, based on the first plan, which was our favorite. But it never quite worked out like that, because as we planned, prepared, rehearsed, in case we were gonna be used, you don't know what's around the corner. You know, it came in the middle of the snooker. The, you know, the body was produced, we had our plan, we knew what it was gonna be. So the plan one that we had, first of all, was the plan we were gonna, you know, hit the building to simultaneously 56 rooms on 11 floors I beg your pardon, 56 rooms on six floors. It's a big okay. space, right? It's a big space. Um, and to do it simultaneously, we already had the plans who was going through which windows or doors. Or so how whatever. many guys were there in your team? Um, guys that went into the building, 32. That's a lot, isn't it? Wow. Because when you yeah, saw it, it, was about it looked 70. like there was about eight of you. you know, so it was about 70, 70, just on about 70 on the operation from the squadron command head headshead as we call it but actually guys who entered the building two two teams red and blue team there was about 32 guys the rest were 
reserves, um, hostage reception, that type of thing out the back. About 32 guys from the top to the bottom and front and back simultaneously. In case one gets held up, you're hoping another team is going to get through because every plan you put together, it doesn't matter what you do, don't ever expect it to work as it's being believed to work. There's going to be, and there was, there was, we had a few problems, but the guys that I worked with um, are all experienced and they've all got two, two things that I always mention, adapt, <coughs> adapt, adaptability sorry, and flexibility. Sorry, you again, Marcy. Sorry, I coughed over you then, sorry. Yeah, um, it's okay. What did I say? You said there's two <laughs> things. Yeah, there's two things, um, two qualities, let's say, that the guys have got. And it's called adaptability and flexibility. You've got a plan. It's going okay. What happens? What if something goes wrong? You've got to get around that obstacle to achieve what? To achieve your mission. And the mission was to rescue the hostages, which at that stage there was 19 left in the building. Wow. 25 to start with, but it was 19 still in there when we assaulted the building to, wow. to, to um, rescue the hostages for the resolution, let's say. And there were six terrorists. Six armed terrorists, wow. yeah. And what did they have? Was it just like guns or did they have explosives as well? Um, and grenades and guns. Wow. Um, but we didn't know if there's any booby traps in there at all. Did you have uh, a way of looking into the building, like thermal imagery, so you could actually see where no, they we were? No, did, we didn't have thermal imagery, but they had um, uh, devices, which the spooks, you know, the spooks, they were putting in devices, listening devices mainly, to try and find out where they were in the building. It's quite accurate, considering it was 40, 43 years ago nearly now. Wow. Um, so it's so quite at least you kind of knew where... They'd be around. We knew yeah. roughly where they were, second floor. But actually, it was the second floor, first floor, and ended up on the ground floor. The top floors, no action up there at all. But you couldn't... You still had to assault that to pronounce it clear. That's mm. where our plan was. So once the whole building was clear and the terrorists had been dealt with and the hostages were rescued, then it was a matter of getting everybody out of the building to the back where they could all be accounted for, handcuffed for those who needed it, females, males, any surviving terrorists. Um, so you'd have all this out the back with the teams of guys, that, their job was to make sure that happened. And then when that was happening, then the place was a, a blaze um, all over, you know, and during the assault, you could hear them screaming and shouting, people falling down the stairs and as they were being pushed one to one. And when you go into a siege, I take it you don't know who is hostile and who isn't. So I take it you just round them all up and cuff them all up. Out the back, the, the, the ones that were engaged inside the building were terrorists because we'd been studying faces. Right. Eventually, they found um, passports... Of, um, they were left in their bedsit in, I think it was Earl's Court. Wow. And they took photos. So each A4 sized piece of paper had a mugshot on it. And then it had what they thought they were wearing maybe green combat jacket, this, that, and the other, 
what weapons, and this was for the six terrorists. So and that was the six terrorists we knew about. It could have been more, but we knew there were six. So you treat them all the same, but inside, the ones that were identified and had, were, were armed were disposed you know, dis, um, it's taken so out. What you say? We disposed of them. <laughs> uh, Jamie Bell in me. <laughs> I mean, I take it in that environment. You don't, you don't want to arrest them. You just want to kill them because they're carrying guns and anger. You don't want to risk that one, someone's going to fucking throw one at you, do you? Yeah, but the, the thing is, we're a, a, a bit more professional than that. Right. We, we knew what we were doing. We knew who we were up against. We knew what they had. The trouble is, we were better trained than them. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's the... And we knew what we were doing. Um, you know, and, and that was... We got rid of... Five of them um, were taken out. Five terrorists were taken out inside the building. One got out. And all 19 hostages came out. So the mission that we had was, was achieved. Amazing. And that's... That's why it's remembered so much, you know, nowadays. Um, it's remembered for that. When you said earlier about when you do these things, things go wrong. Did anything go wrong on that? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, one of the lad's boots went through the window prior to the go, 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 um, which means it's like almost a semi-compromise because the terrorist heard it. He was on the first floor. This happened on the second floor. He heard the window smash. Right. It was a boot went through. Downstairs, I take it he got told off, did he? When he got when no, he got no. <laughs> what they did is he just brought the go 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 forward slightly, right? Um, because you got to make that split decision, which the boss did, and we were in position. Um, but already, when you, we were on the ground floor, and I looked up after the big explosion, the initiation for the assault to go in. There was already flames coming out of the second floor where we knew that most of the hostages and terrorists were going to be. Suffice to say that one guy got really badly burnt on the leg, hung up on his rope, an upsell rope. Oh, that was one of the SS guys? Yeah, that was on the second floor. I was in command of the, the bottom floor, so we were going to put the charge against the window and blow it all in. But when I saw the balcony above, it was like very quickly they pulled the detonator out through them to one side that's safe and that's safe for now yeah it might go off but it's only a detonator and then as we did that we had to use um, sledgehammers to enter the library window instead so that's what I'm saying about adaptability and flexibility yeah. you don't have to go ooh you know um, you, you've got to be there to make decisions and that's what we did but not only that you know one of the lads who had the terrorists there, his gun jammed. Right. He couldn't fire it at that time. So there was a number of things actually happened he that we found out. Him. Nobody knew they were happening, but afterwards it was quite apparent when you have a little bit of a wash-up or debrief that things had gone wrong. But the mission was always to rescue the hostages. So if it goes wrong, you deal with it. You know, and it might be simple as simple. We see the guy um, on the back balcony on the second floor. Couldn't get in. His mask was burnt. He threw the mask on the floor. But what did he do? He didn't whinge and whine. He jumped on the balcony. He jumped from one balcony across to another balcony to get in the window to keep that momentum going. And when they blew the, the window, 
yeah. in the nerves, all the flames. Yeah. Did anybody come over the radio and say, I'm only ask you to blow the bloody window off? <laughs> no, because the radios were crap. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, they were rubbish. Do you, uh, you, have, a, you have a bit of banter, though, don't you? But, I mean, with yeah. the guys. But, do they, with, with the, but I take it, this is so serious now. No. no. Nobody be tired over the radio. No, they might say later on when you go back to the no, base. No, but John Mack, actually, when he went to the window, the, the very window they were blowing, Sim Harris was behind it, the BBC sound recorders. He was behind that window and he was telling him to get out of the way because we're going to put the charge on. What, and he's um, waving? Yeah, yeah. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> get out of the way. Fucking wave me, you idiot, and blow it up. <laughs> no, he was telling him to get out of the way, but he's got his respirator on, see, and he's a jock. You know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's all that type of stuff, but it means something. Yeah. And he did get out of the way because there's subtitles in. They still blew it. And, but he had, and they got inside when they went, and he was down on the floor covered in <laughs> dust and rubbed. And then they threw him out on the balcony, wait there till we finish, and then went back in and did, did the job. Yeah. So, yeah, there was some funny parts to it, yeah. but it's serious. <laughs> and let's be honest, to clear that building, 56 rooms on six levels, so, it, it only took 11 minutes. Wow. And that's out the back to pronounce everybody accounted for. Um, so it took 16 minutes to get into position covertly before the go, go, go. And then 11 minutes to clear the building. And, and that, that's always what they say, go, go, go. That's the, yeah. that's it. Um, you, there's different code words you can use, but because the radios were so crap. They don't have, they don't have one, they don't have one called shoot the cunt, do they? <laughs> <laughs> No, it's just, it's always go, it's all polite, like go, 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 Roger, no, Roger, it's, it's never like I, chicken. I, I, I've, not, I've not heard that one. Uh, I should have twice, yeah, but uh, yeah. No, no, not that one. But no, I mean, it's, uh, it is a fascinating world, um, and obviously you've had a fascinating life, and to actually have written two books about your life, and, and obviously have one of them turn into a TV. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm, I'm surprised they're both they non-fiction. Pardon? They're both non-fiction. Right. But that's important as well, because I, uh, I think the first um, essay story I read was Annie McNabb when he wrote uh, Barber Two Zero. That was the first... Who's he? Um, I don't know, just some author. I think he was ex-essay <laughs> guy. But I read his book, um, and that's then when I thought, oh, this is really interesting. And then I read Chris Ryan's book. Yeah. Um, and obviously I've not had the pleasure of re reading your books, re really, but... You are, because um, I'm going to shove them down your throat after. I'm not going to be foodie. I'm really looking forward to reading these books, though, because I, I did love that show. Uh, I'm surprised it? they didn't make one sooner, to be honest. Uh, what, sorry? I'm surprised they didn't make that into a film sooner, because it happened so long ago, didn't it? 1980. And me. And me. They made it into a film that came out in 2017. The training was done and the rest was done in 2015. So it took a long time. And, and what happened with that? Did they approach you um, about yeah, buying your book and then... They read the book, Go, Go, Go. Um, and these are New Zealand. They read it, the New Zealand Film Corporation. So they read the book and then they approached us, having read it, through a person I know in London. And I said, yeah, I'll meet them. You know, and I went to meet them, the producer, Andrew. Right. He came across from New Zealand. Um, the scriptwriter, he came across the director, uh, and I met them all. And they talked through it, 
And they went back and they sent me a script to read. I haven't spoken to the guys in Hereford. Wow. I took uh, Glenn with me to Hereford for five days. And he met some of the guys, had a few beers, um, a couple of fights. Uh, <laughs> but seriously, that's what I did. And then they went back and he wrote a script. And wow. What do you think? Uh, what do I know about scripts? I read it. There was no, there was nothing, you know, out of context. Everything was okay. And that's what they did. They got the stuntmen, the actors together, filmed a lot of it in New Zealand. Yeah. And then they came back to London to Princess Gate itself where they finalised the filming and stuff on the real building. Amazing, amazing. I mean, that's, I suppose for you, Rusty, being on set and watching that, it must have been a bit weird, like bringing back the memories. I mean, it's sort of... I mean, do, do, do you find from being in... The SAS and from doing, you know, your your job. Have you, have you, some people have have obviously had issues with um, PTSD. Some people do have flashbacks. Some people do have, you know, nightmares. I mean, did, did you ever suffer anything like that? Or yeah, you know, I think most people I know, um, some time, you know, have been through that. Um, some worse than others, obviously. Uh, by speaking about it, it, it sort of helped me a bit, yeah. rather than keeping it, you know... Did you find the books did that? You were able to just get something Well, out. actually, it, it's it's difficult to say that that... It, I, I do a lot of um, speaking engagements and type of things, you know, where they want the stories. I've just come back from the States. I was out there for six days, seven days. And um, the SWAT team invited me across there to speak to them as a guest speaker. Wow. So, how does the SWAT team? Because uh, I know over there, they love it. I mean, they, they are. They love it. They're quite heavy handed. The police over there, aren't they? Yeah, they they are proper police. Yeah, they don't dance in the street with people. Like they don't do, do TikTok here. videos. Sorry, they don't do TikTok videos. What's right? They don't do TikTok videos. Oh no, they don't. <laughs> do TikTok. Yeah, so yeah, that's right. <laughs> but no, they're proper, uh, you know, they really looked after me, uh, us. Yeah. And, um, yeah, they, they wanted the story. I did a podcast for them when I was there. Amazing. Uh, so, and they were absolutely, nothing was a problem. Right. So they, they recognised it, and their younger members, very keen with questions um, to find out, because they relate back to this, the siege. Yeah. They relate back to that as being the benchmark where it all started, and they still use what they were taught. But we've got far better kitten equipment these days and weapons, but they still say that they go back to how we did it here and what we did as the benchmark, and they took it from that level to that level and you know when I did the one over in Texas they were exactly the same the one in San Diego exactly the same all of them are very very interested that must make you proud Rusty to think you know you was part of that and uh, these people were basically you know being a team leader on on the thing and having the famous hands um, you know and then them literally going wow you know we follow this now they do I I suppose it's if you've got criminals terrorists whoever and really, terrorists are criminals, right? So you, you've got these people doing this stuff and, um, 
you know, I mean, when when you was obviously fast forwarding now from 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 that embassy siege to obviously the Falklands War, when you come back from there, um, did the SAS ever get involved in any um, other stuff other than you know? Because I know a lot of um, you have like the police and then you have the armed police, but but uh, it's different now. In those days, they didn't. I know you fast forward, but in those days they didn't have that capability. They had the Met Police, but they didn't have the trained firearms like they've got nowadays. Right, okay. So hence, um, that was our speciality, counter-terrorism. So we were there trained already when this embassy came up um, back in 1980. But nowadays, they've got the firearms departments. I take it if something happened in the 80s that wasn't terrorism, say it was crime, where yeah. there was a shootout or there was a, a, a gangland, you know, people with guns and stuff, would, would the SAS be deployed, obviously, to, to do that? Because obviously they wouldn't be able to... Um, the, the Met didn't have the... the, the I, I don't think so. I mean, I don't know. Um, but I don't think so for the simple reason... There isn't that many SAS guys. You know, there's not reams and it's not like a battalion, you know, 600 men or, it's not like that at all. It's much smaller and, you know, their, their resources, bearing in mind of what's going on worldwide, and has to be taken care of as well. So <clears throat> I doubt it. They've got the firearms department, use them. But back then, if there was, a, if there was an issue an incident with guns or firearms or that that yeah. that would be something well, that it would be count I suppose yeah. back then it wouldn't be classed as crime it would be count yeah. class terrorism wouldn't it yeah but you spoke about Yvonne Fletcher that got shot yeah. that was the Libyan embassy we were what stood is it with these embassies is the Libyan embassy well they get in there they get in there and they think they've got immunity <laughs> so so, that, so so who who so with talking about the Libyan embassy siege, yeah, what happened with that? So I remember we were the, deployed. The lady who got shot. Was it yeah. Yvonne, uh, Fletcher? Yvonne Fletcher? Yeah, she got shot PC, um, and it, it, the guy never come out, did he? But they couldn't go in. So, they, I think they it might have been deported, um, but they never ever released who actually shot her. Wow. Um, so she was killed outside and then it went into the diplomatic as you know it goes on for as long as it goes on but nobody actually entered that building wow um, but that was a Libyan embassy shooting yeah and it was PC even Fletcher yeah after that what what, how, how, what what did you work on any other other missions that were of no I mean on, I know every day there can be a mission but Anything that was sort of newsworthy that was, you know, sort of talked about? Um, no. You know, there's stuff going on all over the world. Um, when I was serving, and there were certain events that happened over the world, and some people were involved, only small amounts. It's not a big news spread, but traditionally helping others, counter-terrorist teams and stuff, that's what we used to do and train other teams. After the embassy siege, everybody wanted to be trained by the SAS. All of a sudden, you could see the pound, shillings and pence 
because it was expensive to get a training team right. from the SCS, so the British government. Right, you know, let's make some money now, and that's what they did. Um, so guys were all over the place training other nationals. Having worked with other special forces teams in different countries, would you say the SAS is still the, the number one? Oh yeah, I would say so, but no, I would say, wouldn't I? Yeah. But actually, from just coming back from America, they'll tell you the same. Right. You know, um, I was down at the Navy SEAL base, I was invited there as a guest uh, only a couple of weeks ago, and um, speaking to the guys there, and they've got nothing respect um, for the SAS mm-hmm. so they even and they you know I've got respect for the Navy SEALs don't get me wrong and other counter-terrorism teams yeah. but again to be invited there is one thing um, to speak and have a meeting with a guy, uh, the top guy who actually knows people I know and I had this story when I told him about Delta right. I might as well come on to this one oh yeah 1977, I did my selection, as I said. Yeah. Um, Bucky Burroughs, he's a guy that was on my selection. Yeah, he's American. Um, he, he came as part, not a pass-fail for him. He came on my selection, then went back to Delta. Sorry, went back to the States. And he, along with Charlie Beckwith, set up and formed Delta in 1977. Wow. So I was talking to him about that, and he knows a pair of them. And this is the, the top guy in the sales. So, so, Del- so Delta Force come out of... They, they were only formed in 1977. Wow. By the guy who came on my selection. And it's just... I don't believe in coincidences, but he did. And then he went back that year, and I think the Delta Force, I think, were formed November 77. Because wow. he only had to do the first, he did the first month with us to yeah. see how that all worked and went back and set up Delta Force. Wait, well, that's good. The, the SAS inspired Delta Force. That's a good well, one. I've, I've never heard of that. That's true. That's great. I love that. That's yeah. true. It was on my selection. And what would you say in your time in the SAS? Well, <laughs> you must have some funny stories. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the trouble is that there is there's lots of different stories you know and some of the guys that the stories are with are no longer with us anymore right. uh, it doesn't really make them funny right. but the, 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 there's all sorts of stories you know when you do the courses that you do externally right. you blow things up and it might be in a hospital stood there with a stethoscope with your best mate like this you know, love and hate as a doctor on his fucking hands <laughs> But the doctors are like, <laughs> you know, with a big moustache, you know. Yeah. But there's loads of funny stories <laughs> because and I'll say one thing. If you haven't got a sense of humour there, don't even bother going because you're going to need it. I mean, I did notice that uh, the, the banter and the camaraderie and the, yeah. you know, the, 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 you know, I think uh, people people worry about, you know, WhatsApp messages, but I've <laughs> read some. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, I'll be honest with you, it, it's a, it's a, it's squatty humour at its best, yeah. you know, because some funny characters, and in my opinion, that's a, a, lot, a lot of the guys that pass selection are half comedians, you know, because they know when the time gets rough, they know how to 
push that off. So what's your what is your what's your sort of plans for the future, Rusty? Because you've obviously got these two books. Um, obviously, you're doing your public speaking. Um, you, you've obviously had this amazing life, um, you know, in the army and then coming out of the army and then getting your book turned into a, into a movie. Um, have you got anything that you want to achieve now? Or you... I'll take it you're retired now. I'd like to move out of England. Right. Okay. I'd like... You're not going to, not going to Rwanda, are you? <laughs> Buy a nice little pied de terre. Rwanda's one country I haven't been to. Right. But no, um, I, I, I just feel for everybody that's in the UK. Right. Um, certainly my side. <laughs> um, but... You know, there's a lot of stuff I want to do, and we've got plans for. Yeah. Um, which are there. But you, actually, to and from the States is... But actually, I'd move there tomorrow, mm. you know. Um, and I could have done it years ago, but didn't. So there is stuff, you know, by the time Christmas is over, have a better plan because right. I've got some stuff in the next two weeks yeah. I enjoy doing what I do yeah and I've got some help and support doing oh, that uh, in fact they lead it half the time yeah um don't you <laughs> um so but you th think you're, you're, I'm not going to stop yeah you think like, you're going to head over to the US though that's where you think you're going to end up um I'd like to yeah um you know even if it was a few months of the Are you year. Are going to move to Vegas or nah. Miami? No. New York? Probably, maybe, maybe Florida. Donald lives down there. Donald is nice. Yeah, I've gone help him lift his wallet. Get your little red hat on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might nip down and have a word with Boris. <laughs> Not Boris, fucking. He looks like Boris. Don, Don, yeah, yeah. They've got the same hair. <laughs> I'm sure Boris doesn't like that idea, the comb over he's got. But, but yeah, there's a few things I've got. Um, there's no point in stopping still. No. There's no point in looking back. So, so summing up, you know, anybody watching this, that um, what would you, what would you say? Still awake? No, they will be still awake. <laughs> but what would you say? What would be your heart of wisdom that you would like to give to the listeners and the viewers on the Criminal Connection? Well, thanks for putting me on the spot. <laughs> but actually, it'd be really nice if. The listeners who are really serious. I've had a lot of people contact me, by the way, after these podcasts um, about different things. And would you stand in this party? Would you? And the fact is, you need more than one person now. It's it's beyond at the moment. But I'd like everybody to express their opinion when they get a chance, because these guys in government, the prime minister, they're very thick-skinned, to say the least. And it's going to take a huge effort, but as a front, together, you might have a chance. But if everybody goes their own way and doesn't do anything, we've got no chance. So wake up and wise up and go for it. Yeah. It, you know, it, we are in disrepair, and all we're doing is going further into disrepair. Let's make Britain great again, Rusty. Yeah. <laughs> but I agree with that. You yeah. know, I, I'm embarrassed from what I remember. Even though I had a bit of a bad bringing up all those years ago. 
seeing it at its best, and now I'm seeing it in decline. I'm not happy. Wow. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, Rusty, and it was great hearing your story today. And I'd come again, even if I liked you. Yeah, no, I appreciate <laughs> it. We had a laugh, didn't we? We had a good laugh. Um, but yeah, part two. Okay. Yeah. Now, Rusty, but thank yeah, you so much. No thank problem. Thank you so much for the books as well. I'm really looking forward to reading them. I mean, yeah, I've seen... I'm going to sign them for you. But I'm going to... Uh, I'll sign them for you, yeah. Thanks for tuning in to the Criminal Connection podcast. Rusty Furman, what a fucking legend. What a great guest. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you like, subscribe, and tell all your friends about the Criminal Connection podcast. And we'll see you next week. See you on the other side.